book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, is where we'll be for tonight's sermon text. If you weren't with us last week, we began what we trust will be a slow journey uh, through the Bible's final book. It's a Bible that is the revelation, we were told, of Jesus Christ, and it's given for our good. It's meant to bring blessing to us. It's the apocalypse from Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, that's meant to bring this divine benediction this blessedness to anyone who reads it and hears it and keeps it. And so it's always good to keep that verse, which is chapter 1, verse 3, in the back of your mind whenever you study Revelation because if our interpretation doesn't bring us blessedness and goodness, we've probably gone wrong in our interpretation along the way. So we want to look at just verses 4 through 8 tonight, an eternal greeting that we get in Scripture. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are bound before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do trust that you will add your blessing to our brief study and meditation this evening. We want to hear your word and we want to be doers of it. Help us to have the heart of joy and gladness, reverence and devotion that we find in the Apostle John in this passage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Those of you, of course, that have been at Redeemer for some period of time know that we are in the midst, and have been for a number of months now, searching for another associate pastor who will serve, or another full-time pastor who will serve here at the church as an associate pastor. And we trust that in time, His perfect timing, God will bring that man that He has chosen to serve here amongst us, serve here with us. And from the very minute that His name is announced you will begin to make an impression of him. Then you'll maybe begin to just search around on social media and you'll make a further impression about him based on what he says, writes, posts, or doesn't say write or post. Then you'll listen to him talk. You'll see him in person and your impression will deepen. You'll hear him preach for the first time and the impression will deeper, deepen further still. And as you're making those impressions, you can respond in a number of ways, can't you? He might make a good impression on you. And right from the outset, you're saying, this is the right man for this church. And so there's this bond, there's a relationship that begins right from the beginning. Others of you will find him making a bad impression upon you. But in time, you'll come to see, well, now I understand him better. Now I've gotten to know him more intimately and Now, I quite see that he's the right man for this job and this relationship of affection grows. And I'm sure for a few of you, 
Maybe some in our church, there could be a bad impression that is out from the beginning and it stays. You never waver from that impression. And so therefore, there's never any sort of relationship that you might have with this man that God places here. And I tell you all that because what you get in our text today is Revelation's first impression of its main character, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And like with every person, you can respond to that first impression in a variety of ways. The Lord Jesus Christ might make a good impression on you right from the very beginning. And you'll always have this relationship of attention and affection with Him. Others of you, He might not make the greatest impression on at the beginning. You reject His claims. You reject His gospel. But in time, His grace overtakes you. It pursues you. And then... A flowering devotion comes along the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, of course, He might make an impression upon you that doesn't woo your heart and win your soul. That you reject Him outright at the beginning. And you never waver from that impression. That means you never have a relationship with Him. And I trust that won't be true of any of you. Kids, what you need to know is that the most important decision you will ever make is what to do with who Jesus is. And what you get in our text tonight is that decision right in front of you. What will you do with who Jesus is? Because the theme of this passage, as I want to paint it for you, is the portrait of the king. It's it's not obviously being filled in yet in Revelation, but we're getting that rough outline and sketch of exactly who this king is. And there's three simple words to just guide our way along these verses, which I'm sure you noticed as I read. Uh, Full of phrases, packed with dense theology, a great doxology, right? So the depths of doctrine always lead the apostles to deeper worship. And that's the way it always should be with God's people. We shouldn't be scared of diving into the deep doctrinal truths of God's word. But we, of course, have not done it rightly, properly, faithfully, if those very deep truths aren't leading us to very earnest affectionate worship. So three simple words to guide you along the way. Number one, trinity. Number two, victory. Number three, sovereignty. Trinity, victory, and sovereignty. First we get in verse four and five a word from the trinity. Look at verse four and how it begins. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now students, if you think about countries in Asia, which countries come to mind? Probably Japan, North or South Korea, China, maybe others. But that's not the Asia that John would have had in mind. He has the Roman province of Asia. To these seven churches, if you just kind of flip over to the next couple pages, chapter 2 and 3, tell us the actual churches, these seven churches, listed there in the next two chapters. And we know that all of these churches were in the modern-day land of Turkey. So John is writing to the seven churches that are in modern-day Turkey. And what you want to pay attention to along the way is how the Word of God, the Word of Christ, goes to these churches. Because although originally Christ's Word was given to these local churches, the fact that it's seven churches, seven, this word, I'm sorry, this number that represents fullness, I think it's telling us that all of these words, although originally directed to that first century Asian context in the Roman Empire are nevertheless applicable to every church throughout every age. And you're going to see that quite 
acutely when you get to the letters to the seven churches. Because it's clear that the instructions of Christ, the warnings of Christ, the words of Christ aren't exclusively devoted to that single church. It's going to apply to all Christians. The greeting begins, you see verse 4 as it continues, grace to you and peace. Can you think of any other New Testament books that right at the beginning begin with grace and peace? Well, you could turn back to the left, get Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Philemon, letters from Peter, letters from John, everywhere, isn't it? That Christianity is what? The good news of grace and peace delivered to sinners like you and me. But how do we get that grace and peace? From where does it come? Well, it comes from a Trinitarian God is what John wants us to know. First, it comes from God the Father. Look at the text as it continues. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. These phrases about time underscoring His eternal being. It's why when Yahweh shows up in Exodus chapter 3 and speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And Moses says, I want to know your name. When they ask me, who sent you? What does he say? I am. Because he has no beginning. He has no end. He simply is. Grace and peace from the Father. Grace and peace from God. The Spirit also, verse 4 continues. Grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The earliest uh, recollection I have of picking a number to go on my soccer jersey was when I was about five years old. My dad was coaching the team at the time, and he said, hey, what number do you want to have on your jersey? You know, coach's son gets the privilege, you know, first number to be taken on the team. And I thought for a few minutes, I don't remember ever being asked what my favorite number was before this. And I thought for a few seconds, and I said, I want to be, I want to be number nine. And my dad smirked, and I later on found out why he was smirking. And the first reason was because my grandpa Stone, who played minor league baseball, his favorite number was number nine. And I had never heard that before. So it seemed to genetically be passing through the generations. <laughs> but also, those of you that love the world's game of football, know that in soccer, number nine is traditionally reserved for the greatest goal scorers. Now, kids, what's your favorite number? John's favorite number is seven. Seven is everywhere in Revelation. Don't you have seen it already in one verse, twice, seven churches? Seven spirits. This great number, of course, in the Hebrew culture that represented fullness, perfection. It's this idea actually taken from Zechariah chapter 4. Because this is referring to, in vivid imagery, God, the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4, the Spirit is depicted as seven burning lampstands there in the temple. This language will be taken up and applied also to God the Spirit in Revelation chapter 5. Grace and peace from God the Father. Grace and peace from God the the Son comes now also at the end of this greeting. Verse 5 continues, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. So here it is, students. The first impression of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And you see how it gives us three simple truths about who he is. Number one, he's the faithful witness. Everything he says is true. So you can trust Jesus Christ. Number two, he's the firstborn over the dead. Essentially that means by virtue of his resurrection. 
Christ has broken into this era, the age to come. That in his resurrection, the new creation has dawned upon earth as he now rules over death. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn over the dead, and he's also the ruler of kings on earth. Which means exactly what you think it means. Donald Trump, the ruler of America, bows to this king. Queen Elizabeth, Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom, bow to this king. Xi Jinping in China bows to this king. This is the portrait of majesty. This is the portrait of ministry that comes from this word from the Trinity. And it leads, secondly, to a word about victory. A word about victory. Because it's so John can't last too long meditating on the glory and beauty of Christ before he just has to break out in worship, right? Look at what happens in verse 5 through 6. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those verbs are helpful to help you know why, reasons why we should rejoice in Jesus Christ. Number one, he loves us. Now, anyone that wants to do it, I can take you into my study after the service tonight. And I'll show you all my Revelation commentaries that I have in this part of my library. And if you turn to chapter 1, verse 5 in Revelation, you might be shocked like I was this week how no single commentary dedicates much ink to the truth that Christ loves us. And I suppose that's partly because it's so self-evident, so obvious that Jesus loves his people. Or maybe you wonder, like me, that we just take it for granted that Christ loves us. And let us never be people that take it for granted. This incredible, life-changing, everlasting, eternal truth worthy of praise that Christ loves his people. Number two, he's released them. He doesn't just love us, he's released us, freed us from sin by his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ spilled there at Calvary, it's like a key that unlocks the prison in which we live, that prison of sin, that prison that belonged to Satan, that prison where death was the wages. And so just as the blood of the Lamb in the Passover in the book of Exodus, it freed God's people to the promised land. So does the blood of Jesus Christ free God's people from their slavery to sin, Satan, and death. He loves us. He has released us. And you can see at the end there of verse 6, he has turned us into kingly priests. Because it says he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. You know, it's one thing, isn't it, to say he has brought us into a kingdom. That's a different thing, isn't it, to say he has made us a kingdom. The kingdom is in God's people. It's through God's people. A kingdom of priests. It's actually realizing this Old Testament text spoken all the way back in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. Where God said to his covenant people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And finally in the work of Christ, God's purposes and promises are coming to pass. And because of this, he's loved us. He's released us. He's turned us into his priestly kings, his kingly priests. To him belongs worship forever and ever. Amen. That is the word about victory that now leads to the word of sovereignty. The first church position I ever had was at First Baptist Church of Prosper, not too far northwest of here. I was the student pastor for a number of years there. 
And the chairman of the deacons at the time was this beloved man who used to always sit on the front row, on the right side of the congregation. And he's one of those Baptist deacons that can never be quiet in the midst of preaching. Always talking to the preacher as he's preaching. In a good way. I love it. You know, saying amen. Encouraging him along. You know, just never seemed to be able to cease. Even sometimes when you thought, I'm not sure that truth deserved an amen. But nevertheless, he gave an amen. John loves to give amens, doesn't he? You see that at the end of verse 6. Amen. Look at the end of verse 7. Amen. Yet the end of verse 7. What he's amening is much more fearsome. For look at how the text continues, verse 7. Behold. I guess you could stop right there, students. Whenever you see behold in the New Testament, you need to pay attention. That's the Spirit's way of saying, listen up to what's coming. It's really important. Okay? Behold. He, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. That's actually a direct quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which in the original context pictured the Son of Man coming on clouds up to the ancient of days, up to heaven, which was fulfilled in Jesus' ascension. But what John often does is he takes Old Testament prophecy, and in Revelation he kind of turns it around, applies it maybe in a different direction. Because I think what he's doing here is, of course, not speaking of the Son of Man's coming to Christ and the ascension, but the Son of Man's coming from the ancient of days at his final return. It's not a coming to earth as Daniel pictured it. I'm sorry, a coming to heaven as Daniel pictured it, but it's a coming to earth from heaven in time. The Old Testament quotes continue actually as the verse moves on, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's a direct quotation from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which the gospel authors say immediately referred to Jesus being pierced in his work on the cross. But John again is turning it in a different way. And I want you to pause right here and recognize, even just in the span of our few verses tonight, we've seen how dependent John is on the Old Testament. The Old Testament is giving him the vocabulary for his visions. And in a, a real way, you can't make sense of any part of the New Testament, especially the last book in the New Testament, apart from the whole First Testament in God's Word. So it's a reason to saturate your minds and parents. You want to be careful to do this with your children, to make sure they are aware not just of the stories of the Old Testament, singing and meditating and praying on the Psalms of the Old Testament, but coming to those prophetic texts that tend to be quite troubling, because that's actually what's meant to be happening here. Look at how verse 7 continues. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. You know, if you're in here this evening and wouldn't say that you're trusting in Jesus Christ, what the text is announcing, that there is a terrifying, troubling day on the way for you. That when Jesus Christ comes on the clouds at the last day, it will be too late for you to turn it will be too late for you to repent. Instead of opening your mouth in worship, you will open your mouth in mourning, in wailing, in woe, in lamentation. Because you will finally decide and discover and realize that first impression you had of Jesus was all wrong. That what he said was really true. And what he said of you was really true. But now it's too late. And you might be like me. You have loved ones, friends, family members, that if Jesus was to return tonight, their response to his return would be this, wailing. So you almost, in your spirit, want to say, Lord, wait. Just a little bit longer. 
Let me warn them again. Let me speak to them again. Let me tell them again about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's almost as though John recognizes that in his own spirit, but see how he ends verse 7. Even so. Even so. Amen. Further underscoring the sovereignty of the Father is verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Many of you, I'm sure, have bought many things from Amazon. You've noticed their cheeky logo. That means to say something significant about their business. As this yellow arrow stretches where underneath? From A to Z. To tell you that they sell everything from A to Z. My kids, Alpha and Omega are the first and final letters in the Greek alphabet. It was a Greek way of saying the beginning and the end. Here's the Father once again reasserting His might and majesty, His sovereignty. I'm the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Franz Kafka was a, a prog novelist in the 19th century. He once said, first impressions are always unreliable. And that's true, isn't it, of first impressions of each other? For we're always changing. We're always growing. We hope in Christ. We're always maturing. But it's completely untrue when it comes to first impressions of Jesus Christ, isn't it? He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So how will you respond to this first impression, this portrait of a powerful and perfect king named Jesus Christ? I'll just give you two final responses as we close trying to bring together these strands and phrases and truths in our text. Number one, these truths call us to watching. To watching. He is coming one day soon, isn't He? Are you looking? Are you waiting? Are you hoping? When He comes, will your eyes open in wonder and amazement because you've come to Him in faith? Or will your mouth open in wailing Because you waited until it was too late. Because you were never watching for him. These truths call us to watching. And number two, they call us to worshiping. You can't get around that in John's revelation. It seems as though he's falling down all over the place in this great book. Because he sees all of these majestic truths about the risen and exalted King Jesus who's coming once again. And he can't get very far into his visions. He can't get very far into his writing before. What does he do? Just breaks out in praise. Just breaks out in spontaneous worship. Immediate doxology. And when was the last time that happened in your life? You were confronted with Jesus Christ. With the mind's eye of faith, you beheld the King in His beauty. And like John, you couldn't help but burst out to Him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, maybe if you ask each other that question over dinner tonight, you might be able to say, the last time we did that was just about an hour ago because we saw the portrait of the king in Revelation chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask simply this evening that you would grow our trust, that you would grow our affection, that you would bring us to our Savior, that anyone who might be in here this evening, anyone who might be listening, has not yet come to Christ, the pierced Savior who bled for sinners, that they would come to Him so they might not wail at the end. 
but instead his coming would be one of welcome. Help us to worship you always as we always want to watch for you. Increase our longing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.